Are you really what you eat? Have you ever wondered how your eating behaviors influence your mental health? Is food really thy medicine and medicine thy food? If so, why do healthcare practitioners rarely talk about it? We know that a healthy diet plays a significant role in physical health, but a growing body of research is shedding light on how diet and nutritional intake may help regulate mood and mental health. This exciting field, known as nutritional psychiatry, could potentially be a game changer for the mental health epidemic that is becoming a global problem. But like any emerging field, nutritional psychiatry is not without its controversies. There's a lot to cover here, and we've decided to dedicate a few episodes on the topic, including interviews with leading experts in the field. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Think Twice. It's me again. For those who don't know me yet, my name is Ev, and I am your host for this season of Think Twice. I'm a PhD student in neuroscience at Queen's University, and my research focuses on the usage of gene therapy in central nervous system disorders. And today I'm talking with Elena again. Can you briefly introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Elena, also a PhD student in neuroscience at Queen's. My research focuses on exploring eating behavior and circadian dysfunction and mood disorders, as well as novel tools for assessment and treatment. And I'm super excited for this series, which overlaps a lot with my research interests. Yeah, me too. I think it's going to be a fascinating and a really important series of discussions. So we've briefly introduced nutritional psychiatry as the intersection between mental health and food intake. Can you start us off by giving us more detail as to what nutritional psychiatry is exactly? Absolutely. So we know that eating a healthy, balanced diet can help you achieve your physical health goals, whether you want to lose weight, build muscle, run farther, whatever. But just like your heart, muscles, or lungs, the brain is also an organ of the body and is impacted by what we eat. There's so many different pathways. Nutritional psychiatry, also known as nutritional psychology or nutritional mental health, is an interdisciplinary field that explores the connection between diet and mental health. For example, using food, diet styles, or specific nutritional supplements to help improve mental well-being and ultimately quality of life. Yeah, this connection between nutrition and mental health seems so obvious to me personally because I know when I eat consistently well, I just feel better you know to me eating well is synonymous with having more energy being in a better mood feeling less bloated and therefore probably feeling better about my physical appearance and it's a bit crazy to me that the world seems to be getting unhealthier with so many diseases linked to poor nutrition habits you know like obesity diabetes but also malnutrition And at the same time, we have this global mental health epidemic that really seems to intersect, at least in part with this. This whole field of nutritional psychiatry really seems super important to explore at this point in time. For sure. And I think we can all recognize the link between taking care of our bodies and noticing positive results for mental well-being. And it really is a global epidemic. I mean, mental health poses a huge challenge to society with mental disorders among the top 10 leading causes of burden worldwide. And according to the World Health Organization, one in eight people actually struggle with a mental disorder, which is nearly a billion people worldwide. So this just means we all know someone who is struggling or has struggled with mental health. And I'm sure most of our listeners can resonate with that. 
But even though mental health issues are pretty common and do cause a lot of suffering, our standard treatments are lacking in effectiveness. And by standard, I just mean the usual approach of medication and therapy for people struggling with their mental health. Although this combination can be absolutely life-saving, they aren't working for everyone. Sometimes it can take years and years to find the right medication and therapy combination that works, if the patient can even find one at all. So this gap in care leaves so many people to suffer in the meantime. And it doesn't just impact those with the diagnosis. I really do believe that the suffering caused by mental illness has impacts everywhere and to everyone in some way or another. Yeah, for sure. And you know, those stats you mentioned, they really are terrifying, but unfortunately they're really not that surprising. Yeah, and I mean, the good news is that this field of research is a massive one and there is so much emerging knowledge, including how lifestyle can be used in treatment, hopefully produce better outcomes. The drawbacks of standard treatments is suggesting that we are missing something, and maybe these methods aren't targeting the full range of mechanisms that contribute to poor mental health. I think considering lifestyle and diet could really improve clinical care substantially, and it represents a super accessible and inexpensive way to combat the suffering caused by mental illness. Yeah, it's so true, and especially relevant to the current state of the world right now. Exactly, and I actually brought a quote with me today that I think really highlights this. So, in the context of urban expansion, climate change, cultural and technological changes, and global industrialization and ultra-processing of food, findings related to nutrition and mental health are connected to some of the most pressing issues of our time. The clear message is that in the midst of a looming global epidemic, we ignore nutrition at our peril. And that quote's from a 2014 paper by Logan et al. It's really interesting because it basically highlights that our lifestyles in the modern world are so different than what they used to be, especially in the Western world. So urbanization, the food industry, climate change, food insecurity, overnutrition, underactivity, the list goes on. These are all changes that have been linked to higher rates of depression and other mental disorders. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Obviously, many factors contribute to poor mental health, but there's a ton of evidence that diet is a strong therapeutic target. And this is because nutrition and eating behaviors do target many of the mechanisms which have been shown to contribute to mental health. But we'll get into more of the evidence later in the episode. Yeah, it makes sense that what we eat impacts our bodies and brains so much and that, you know, as mentioned before, many of us neglect our nutrition at our own peril, which in turn has negative effects on our mood. Definitely, and although nutritional psychiatry is a field which scientists believe could be game-changing for patients with mental illness, it's also a widely debated one, which has been historically neglected in medicine. Right, there is some controversy over this field, which we'll certainly get into in a bit, but first, can you tell me a bit about how the field even came to be? Yeah, so although many do consider it to be an emerging field, nutritional psychiatry has actually been around for quite a while. So the idea that nutrition can influence mental well-being actually dates back to ancient times, but it was the formal scientific exploration of this concept that began more recently in the late 20th century. So essentially, humanity has always known that there's an impact of diet on the brain, but we are only recently beginning to uncover the mechanisms of this connection more formally and what this means for clinical care. That's so fascinating, and I'm really curious, what was the understanding prior to the 20th century? Well, the association between food and mood does have a lot of roots in ancient civilizations. Many cultures believe that dietary habits played a role in influencing emotions and mental health. For example, there was 
was ancient Greek philosophers such as Hippocrates, who emphasized the significance of food in maintaining a balanced mind. So he famously quoted, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food, suggesting that a proper diet was vital for physical and mental well-being. He also believed that diet played a crucial role in maintaining balance of the humors, also known as the bodily fluids. Things like honey and wine were considered beneficial, while overconsuming certain foods was thought to lead to mental disturbance. And then there's ancient Indian medicine, also known as Ayurvedic medicine. They characterized food based on their qualities and impact on the three doshas, so the body, the mind, and our behavior. And a balanced diet tailored to the individual was believed to promote sort of a mental equilibrium. For example, too much spicy food and oily food was thought to provoke mental agitation. And then finally, in traditional Chinese medicine, mental health is viewed as a reflection of the balance between opposing forces of yin and yang, and diet was seen as a means to maintain this balance. So certain foods were considered beneficial for the calming mind, like green tea, which contains theanine, an amino acid which is known for its relaxing effects. Hmm, That's very cool. And I imagine that the ancient understanding of mental health was also intertwined with, you know, spiritual beliefs and probably cultural practices, too. Definitely. And while some of their insights have stood the test of time and do have their own unique importance, modern science has deepened our understanding of the relationship between diet and mental health, which is actually really complex. So today we have a more of an evidence-based understanding of the nutrients and dietary patterns that can positively influence our mood. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, we do love evidence-based knowledge. Mm -hmm. Just curious, when did we start to actually conduct research in this field? Yeah, so although the impact of diet and nutrition on mental well-being has been shown for centuries, the field of modern nutritional psychiatry as we know it is actually pretty young, with a lot of pioneering work in the early 20th century. For example, in 1921, Dr. Charles W. Paddock published Dietotherapy in Psychiatry, one of the first books dedicated to exploring the effects of diet on mental health. Also, in terms of specific nutrients, the first vitamin thiamine was isolated and chemically understood in 1926, which is actually less than 100 years ago. Wow. Yeah, so research on other vitamins and their benefits for different health conditions has really accelerated since then. And then there's the influence of certain macronutrients, so fat, protein, or carbs on health. And this was the next trend in the mid-20th century, followed by more recently an emphasis on specific diet patterns. But this mainly focuses on the impacts of physical health. Right. I honestly didn't realize that this field was that young. And I would imagine in terms of the effects of nutrition on mental health, you know, such an interesting take on psychiatry would have become widely popular at this point. Yeah, well, actually, it was kind of the opposite. I mean, despite those early insights by Dr. Paddock, the field did remain relatively overlooked and under-researched for several decades. And then with the advent of antidepressant medications in the 50s and 60s, the focus on nutrition's role in mental health declined a lot. These pharmaceutical interventions quickly became the primary approach to treating mental disorders, which sort of overshadowed the potential impact of diet on psychological well-being. Then in the late 20th century, we witnessed a revival of interest in nutrition psychiatry, 
So scientists, clinicians, researchers all began to revisit the idea that diet might be influencing our mental health outcomes. One of the most influential studies was from the work of Dr. Joseph Hebeln and colleagues who explored the link between omega-3 fatty acids and mental health. As a psychiatrist and researcher, he noticed that certain populations had lower rates of depression and other mental health issues. And interestingly, their diets were consistently rich in omega-3 fatty acids. And omega-3s are found in high concentrations in fish and some nuts and seeds and are basically components of cell membranes in the brain with many properties also involved in mood regulation. So building on this, Dr. Hebeln conducted further research and examined the association between fish consumption and the incidence of depression around the world. And he found that countries higher in fish consumption tended to have lower rates of depression. And this was a landmark study published in Lancet in 1998. And then since this groundbreaking work, research on the connection between diet and mental health continued to evolve. So there are also publications like The Food Mood Connection by Dr. Gary Nall and The Chemistry of Joy by Dr. Henry Emmons and Catherine Ketchman. All of these works and many others contributed to rekindling the public interest in nutritional psychiatry. That's really interesting. And honestly, it makes me really happy that I enjoy eating fish. <laughs> There's something that seems like a striking common theme in a lot of the controversial topics we discussed on the podcast in earlier episodes, like in the field of psychedelic research, for example. You know, that field of research was raging in the 60s and the 70s and then came to a halt and is now emerging again as a field with, you know, a bunch of exciting applications for mental health care. It seems like this might also be the case for nutritional psychiatry. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, I think it's an interesting thing about humans. We tend to go through these waves of hype with the media and news outlets also sort of amplify this tenfold. But I do think there is value in staying grounded, conducting the research and finding evidence-based answers for the questions that are really exciting us. Yeah, of course. And, you know, that's why we're here after all, to find the truth amongst the noise that is the mainstream media hype. But anyway, back to the field of nutritional psychiatry. After a lull in the research and a bit of resurgence in the late 20th century, where are we at now? Yeah, so based on my readings, the field has come a long way and is mainly interested in the role of whole diet interventions. So in the early 21st century, several landmark studies shed light on the link between diet and mental health with some more concrete data. So one significant study was known as the SMILES trial, or the Supporting the Modification of Lifestyle in Lowered Emotional States, which was published in 2017 by Dr. Felice Jacka's group. And this was a 12-week clinical trial which demonstrated that a modified Mediterranean diet significantly reduced depressive symptoms when compared to a control group in individuals with major depressive disorder. Hmm, that's really impressive. Um, I've heard a lot about the Mediterranean diet in the media, mostly because of its benefits for like atherosclerosis, but what is it exactly? Yeah, so the Mediterranean diet has been recognized initially for its benefits on cardiovascular health and metabolic disorders like obesity and diabetes. It's a dietary pattern observed in communities that surround the Mediterranean Sea and is characterized by the intake of plant-based foods, nuts, olive oil, whole grains, seasonally fresh food with some fish and poultry. And it's often considered as somewhat opposite to the infamous Western diet, which is high in red meat and dairy, processed carbohydrates, artificial additives, fat, and the Western diet is really known for its poor health effects. 
And specifically, an increased risk of depression is observed in those consuming a Western diet and may be related to how this diet increases inflammation in the body. But in comparison, many randomized controlled trials have found reductions in depressive symptom severity following adherence to a Mediterranean diet, even in studies with a follow-up of just three weeks. Hmm, that's really interesting. Are there any other diets that have been studied for mental health? Yeah, so a number of diets have been studied, but another one with some positive results is known as the DASH diet or the dietary approach to stop hypertension. And this diet basically includes foods to reduce blood pressure. So fruits, vegetables, beans, nuts, whole grains, low-fat dairy, and just proper levels of things like fiber, potassium, magnesium, and calcium. And there are even a mashup of the DASH diet and the Mediterranean diet, which is known as the MIND diet. Uh, and this one was originally developed to promote brain health for those with neurodegenerative delay. In a 2015 study published in Alzheimer's and Dementia, the journal of the Alzheimer's Association, researchers found that adherence to a MIND diet was associated with a slower rate of cognitive decline and a reduced risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And this study suggested that dietary patterns could have a significant impact on cognitive function and neurodegenerative disorders. And then another study in Lancet was published by Dr. Liddy Pelsner and her team, who found that adherence to a restrictive elimination diet significantly reduced symptoms of ADHD in some adolescents. That's really impressive, and it's pretty clear that there's some evidence about how certain diets can improve mental health, but is there any research as to why or how these diets are improving mental health exactly? Yeah, so as the scientific community begins to recognize the potential of nutritional interventions for mental health, research in the field is expanding rapidly and studies are investigating the impact of why these various diets, nutrition, and dietary patterns are having on these range of conditions. So one critical discovery that emerged during the expansion of nutritional psychiatry was the concept of the gut-brain axis. So basically the trillions of bacteria living in your gut play an important role in this two-way signaling interaction that's happening between the digestive system and the brain. Your gut actually contains 500 million neurons which are connected to your brain through the nervous system. And then one of the biggest nerves in this connection is the vagus nerve. So there's essentially this constant crosstalk between the gut and the brain, which makes sense as a way that our diets might be influencing our mental health. The majority of the brain serotonin is actually produced in the gut, and this is a major brain molecule involved in mood regulation and depression. You know, that's a really interesting point. It's known that the gut-brain axis is involved in many disorders, and it's actually under investigations for a lot of other disorders. So one of the first ones that comes to mind to me is Parkinson's disease, or PD, where there's this growing body of evidence that suggests that this axis is closely linked to the disease onset and progression. And there's been this prominent hypothesis for a while now that sporadic or non-inherited forms of PD might be caused by the initial alteration of neurons in the gut or neurons in the nasal cavity or in the nose, which are both connected to the vagus nerve. And there's actually quite a bit of clinical evidence supporting this because in early stages of PD, symptoms linked to these structures like loss of smell, like constipation, nausea, etc. 
are actually quite common. And one of the critical aspects of this hypothesis is that the progression of PD is linked to the spreading of this pathological protein to the CNS via the vagus nerve. And this is just one of many examples where we actually have lots of evidence that suggests the importance of the gut for proper brain function. So it's not surprising to me that we're finding more and more links to various types of disorders, including mood disorders, like the ones we're talking about in this episode. Definitely. And that's so interesting about Parkinson's disease. And so many studies demonstrate that certain gut bacteria can produce metabolites that affect brain and behavior too. And research shows too that people with mental health issues like depression have a different gut microbiome. And by different, I just mean less bacteria and a less diverse microbiome compared to healthy people. Mm. Although I do want to note that research is still trying to figure out what really defines a gut microbiome as healthy or not. Actually, a group here at Queens is conducting some exciting work in this area, including our colleague Cassandra, who joined us for the grad school episode. So in her lab, they're conducting a clinical trial looking into a gut microbiome treatment to help repopulate gut bacteria and improve mood symptoms in people with major depression. She did mention that they just finished recruitment, so it'll be exciting to see those results in the future. But overall, research continues to find evidence for this two-way communication between gut microbiota and the brain, which we will go more in depth into in our next episode in the series. So I don't want to spoil anything yet there. Yeah, for sure. Definitely stay tuned for the next episode on the gut-brain axis. Spoiler alert, we'll be having a special guest joining us for that episode. Yeah, and although the gut-brain axis is a key player for sure, there are also other systems of our physiology that have shown to be dysfunctional in mental health conditions, but are also influenced by nutrition. Okay, can you walk me through some of those? Yeah, I won't be able to cover everything in this episode, but a few of the markers studied in relation to mental illness include things like increased inflammation, activity of the hypothalamic pituitary axis, also known as the body's stress system. And another interesting change is decreased levels of these things known as neurotrophic factors, which are basically little proteins that help support our neurons and keep them healthy, the most common of which is known as brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF. This has been especially found in relation to mood disorders. It's quite promising that, although these changes are consistently observed in mental disorders, nutritional approaches have been shown to help with reducing inflammation, easing the stress system, and even increasing levels of neurotrophic factors like BDNF. And many of these other systems do actually interact with the gut-brain axis, so just showing how it truly is a fully interconnected system. Right. And... Now that we have some historical context and a sense of where we are now with this research, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into some of the controversies surrounding uh, nutritional psychiatry. I bet our listeners are probably wondering if there is such a promising connection between diet and mental health and even lifestyle in general, why aren't medical professionals prescribing it or even mentioning it to patients? Yeah, this is a complicated question, which involves a consideration for things like social stigma, financial incentives, politics, legislation, and we don't have time to dive into all these components today, but I do think it's an important thing to note that some of the contributing factors as to why diet and lifestyle aren't part of clinical care and why doctors aren't mentioning them. So medical practitioners rarely implement nutritional interventions despite all this research, and it's really not talked about enough. So... 
According to one study, less than half of physicians emphasize the benefits of lifestyle to their patients, and most report that they don't have adequate training in nutrition. So despite the fact that physicians are in training for four to six years at least, nutrition comprises less than eight hours of the total medical school training. And I find this quite surprising considering the knowledge we have on the importance of diet and nutrition and just the fact that it's so accessible for anyone to implement these changes, especially considering the safety profile too. I mean, I don't know of anyone getting hurt by eating more whole foods. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I guess the thing is when you have to know everything about the human body, you can't actually be expected to know everything. You know, for a general physician, it's more relevant probably, I'm assuming, to briefly assess the patients and then direct them to more specialized healthcare providers that can actually guide them more specifically. For sure, but I do think if clinical outcomes can be improved by adding lifestyle changes like improved diet, then I think even general physicians should be aware of that. So using lifestyle interventions for psychiatry can represent a super accessible, safe, and relatively easy method to optimize mental health and just supplement our existing mental health care. Mm -hmm. Although I do want to note that everyone has different financial situations and quality food can be quite expensive depending on where you live. A lot of these expensive foods branded as health alternatives may not actually be as healthy as you might think as well. So things like we're seeing an influx of foods in the Western diet, such as, you know, increased consumption of canola oil, soybean oil, and these are ingredients which can actually contribute to inflammation. So it could be interesting to take a look at the ingredients list next time you go grocery shopping to notice what are in those types of products. And I do think there are always, you know, those simple foods like rice, beans, even frozen vegetables that are low cost, simple, and can be incorporated pretty easily for most people. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, we love to complain about the price of eating healthy. But if that means better health outcomes, not only are we gaining in quality of life individually, but we're also reducing the cost of health care. And, you know, we're in Canada, so the financial burden of healthcare is spread in a way that a lot of our healthcare is actually covered by government funds. Obviously, not everything is covered, but the financial burden is far from comparable to some other countries where it's common for people to have to pay for healthcare out of pocket. And healthcare is expensive. I don't know if this has been looked at by economists yet, but it would be interesting to know how the price of eating healthy compares to the price of healthcare over a lifespan. Maybe they could do a crossover episode with us. Or something. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> and another thing is that lifestyle factors like nutrition represent a preventative method to improve health. So modern medicine isn't really structured this way. It's pretty reactive in the sense that you don't usually go to the doctor or hospital unless something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I do think we could do a better job of educating the public on how to prevent illnesses and maximize quality of life, regardless of your current health. Yeah, this is definitely true. And it's currently a major drawback with our healthcare system. But we do also have to consider that it should be the physician's responsibility to educate the public, but it can't be their responsibility to implement these lifestyle changes. And that's a whole other battle. 
It really is. I mean, regardless, there's definitely a gap in nutritional education in medical schools, which leaves clinicians without much knowledge on how to discuss dietary patterns and these interventions with their patients. And although improvements are beginning to be made, as the field progresses, more knowledge will be incorporated into guidelines for clinicians with clear plans for their patients. And another interesting aspect is the rapid advancements in technology that we're experiencing, which could help this field as well. So for example, there's many apps which are being refined and developed to help clinicians assess patient diet and maintain nutritional interventions. And the use of different technologies in the assessment and treatment monitoring of eating behavior is something we'll discuss in more detail in following episodes in this series. This is actually something my research focuses on, and to be honest, I think it'll be the future of psychiatry, so really excited for that upcoming episode. Yeah, that's really cool, and I also can't wait to hear our episode. I feel like we also can't deny the influence of the pharmaceutical industry, which contributes to prioritizing the prescription of medications over preventative lifestyle changes. This seems like a bit of an obvious answer to me, but do you think that that maybe contributes? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that it does. And the pharmaceutical industry has contributed to increased quality of life for so many people. I mean, medications can be absolutely life-saving, but they can also be overprescribed without even addressing the impact of lifestyle. So many studies have found that lifestyle interventions have a significant impact on improving both physical and mental health. So it's kind of wild to me why this low risk and accessible option would not be explored first. If it's safe to do so and the patient doesn't require more immediate care, of course. And also it doesn't need to be mutually exclusive. So there may be a cumulative effect of positive lifestyle changes along with medication use and the research supports this as well. Yeah, for sure. And there's also this whole idea, you know, that the pharmaceutical industry is so intertwined with healthcare and medical education, which I do assume plays a role here too, but that's a discussion for another day. Definitely, and there is evidence for that. There's direct-to-consumer advertising, which is prohibited in Canada, but in the U.S., drug companies spend millions on marketing, and American patients are more likely to request these advertised drugs and to be prescribed them. In fact, pharmaceutical industry revenues were actually around $1.5 trillion last year. Wow. And I mean, pharmaceutical industry aside, I imagine with such an emerging field, you know, antidepressants have been around since the 50s, but we're only recently recognizing the impact of diet. I'm assuming there may be some hesitancy to implement these techniques clinically. So what are some of these counter arguments that have challenged the field of nutritional psychiatry? Well, many researchers and clinicians advocate for the potential benefits of nutritional psychiatry. Like any field, there are some limitations which may have contributed to the delay in implementing these techniques. So one of the primary reasons nutritional psychiatry faces skepticism is that there's a perceived lack of evidence to support its claims. While there is a growing body of research linking diet to mental health outcomes, many studies are purely observational and suffer from small sample sizes and other limitations like lack of long-term follow-ups. The gold standard for testing any intervention is the randomized controlled trial or RCT. So basically it involves randomly assigning a specific population to different groups, one receiving the experimental intervention and one that will not, which is known as the control group. Research will also often not let the participants know which group they were assigned to. And this is something known as blinding, which just helps to reduce the effects of expectancy bias. 
overall the goal is just to see if there are any differences at the end of the trial between experimental and control groups and that these differences are due to experimental interventions and not some other variable. There are so many variables and factors that are difficult to account for in these RCTs, um, especially when evaluating nutritional interventions, which can hinder the ability to make definite and concrete conclusions. For example, people can eat the same diet but have vastly different physical activity levels, different sleep quality, different social interactions, stress levels, socioeconomic status, comorbid conditions, and the list goes on. It's also almost impossible to have proper blinding in studies of diet, as the participant is usually the one creating and adjusting the food, which is the intervention in this case. So overall, the field just needs more work to overcome these challenges and conduct high-quality studies in order to establish a solid science background to draw definitive conclusions about if these diets and nutrients are truly as effective as we think they are for mental health. True. And I also imagine it's pretty difficult to measure when people eat at different times, you know, different quantities and may not remember everything they eat either. Definitely. And proper measurement and assessment techniques are also super important for a good RCT. The difficulty in accurately assessing an individual's diet is another contentious aspect of the field. Dietary patterns are complex and multifaceted, which makes it really challenging to isolate specific nutrients or foods that are responsible for mental health outcomes. There are also limitations to the way nutritional data is collected, so researchers often rely on self-reported dietary intake, which can be prone to biases and inaccuracies, leading to potential confounding factors in the results. For example, if you try and think about all the meals you consumed in the past week, it's not that easy, is it? People even have a hard time remembering what they had for dinner last night. So human memory is highly flawed and represents a major limitation for a lot of studies. Yeah, for sure. And we also can't forget the shame factor. You know, if you're part of a study and you've agreed to follow a certain diet, but you don't do it as you're supposed to, or if you take a quote unquote cheat day, you know, what are the odds that you actually disclose that? It seems like if most of the data on nutrition is collected this way, it's a pretty huge limitation. Yeah, such a good point. And this is related to what we call social desirability in research. So the participants aware they're being analyzed and studied and may change their behavior to appear a certain way to the researchers. Some studies I've been involved with will administer a social desirability questionnaire to see how likely participants are to alter their answers in this way. But even still, it's definitely a tough thing to avoid in human research. And another thing is that studies are often cross-sectional in nature, so they gather this data at one time point. So the participant could be filling out a questionnaire about their eating habits. And although this is relatively an easy way to get a sense of the participant's diet, it's the habits that you engage in in the long term that have the biggest impact on your well-being. So we really need repeated assessments to capture that. Again, this is all stuff we'll touch on later in this series when we discuss how technology is helping and advancing the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about other limitations? Are there any to note? Yeah, so another thing is there's a lot of heterogeneity between studies conducted in the field. So this means that studies often use different interventions, different populations, different measures, etc. So the diversity of studies can contribute to conflicting findings and really makes it difficult to compare across these studies, let alone to meta-analyze the results in any way. And this can ultimately create confusion among practitioners in the public. Yeah, that makes sense. In that case, it would be like comparing apples to oranges, you know. 
and what can we do to overcome these limitations and contribute to the field more efficiently? Yeah, I think the solution to these issues is to continue research efforts with higher rigor and replicate studies to come to more conclusive results. And researchers are already doing this. For example, I see this in the study of the ketogenic diet for mental health. And this is essentially a low-carb, high-fat diet with some preliminary evidence of an antidepressant effect. But eating very low-carb, participants are put into ketosis. So this is a state where the brain switches from using glucose to ketones as the primary fuel source. So although it can be difficult to blind participants to their diet, like I mentioned, it can be possible to give participants a drink or a pill they have to take every day in the experimental group. So this would be like a low carb drink or pill in the experimental group um, versus just water in the control group. And it would have carbs added to bring the participants out of ketosis without them even knowing. And this would allow blinding because both groups have to have the drink but are not told its contents, which is kind of an interesting idea. And for assessment, like as mentioned earlier, mobile technology has come a long way to avoid relying on human memory and gathering information about one's diet. There are even apps now which allow the participants to track their meals just by taking a picture of it. And then a machine algorithm will use that to figure out the rest in terms of specific macro and micronutrient content. And these methods are still a work in progress for sure, but they are being developed. Hmm. That's really cool. And that second one sounds like it'd be super useful for many groups of people, including like bodybuilders and stuff. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) One thing that we love to talk about here on Think Twice is the whole problem of misinformation. As discussed in previous episodes, we know that the media is a promising place for the communication of evidence-based concepts and information. But this isn't always the case, unfortunately. Can you talk a little bit about the misinformation out there in relation to diet and mental health? Yeah, so nutrition is definitely a hot topic in the media. I mean, lots of people are interested in the best foods, new diets, the overall impact of their eating behaviors on mental well-being. And when researching this episode, I found a ton of information on the topic. So, for example, there was this Harvard psychiatrist and also chef and author of the book, This Is Your Brain on Foods. And they provided misinformation and mediocre evidence for a medicinal effect of various foods like blueberries, curcumin, saffron. And this was then debunked in a recent online article by the journalist Jonathan Jerry at McGill University. So she lists foods, this is the psychiatrist, lists foods that increase and relieve anxiety, memory-boosting foods, and even libido-boosting foods. Mm. But she frequently exaggerates the reliability of the studies she references using these small preliminary studies or low-quality studies to derive specific nutritional recommendations. So nothing comparable in rigor to those RCTs we were mentioning earlier. And although the overall diet she recommends is not bad, and she does warn against the modern Western diet and praises fruits, vegetables, nuts, fiber, etc. It's fair to say that improving your diet will have a positive impact on your health, but we need to properly research the contributions nutrition can make to quality of life when we're dealing with mental illnesses and making such claims to the public. Yeah, that for sure is a little worrisome, especially because this specific person actually is a healthcare provider, so I mean, you would think that they would know better. And one thing that we're really careful with in biomedical research in general is to avoid overpromising results and avoid exaggerating the actual clinical implications of these results, especially when the field is very new and little is known about it. 
I'm wondering too, you know, some of the claims that you mentioned could actually have an impact on food marketing and on people's nutrition-related decisions. Do you think there's a risk for commercialization of the field of nutritional psychiatry, similar to what was done with pharma? So as nutritional psychiatry gains popularity, it 100% has also attracted commercial interest. The marketing of various mental health diets and supplements without robust scientific backing can mislead people, especially those that are seeking alternative approaches to mental health management. For example, in 2007, there was a company known as True Hope Nutritional Support, and they had advertised this supplement known as EMP Power Plus as an alternative mental health treatment offering quote-unquote hope for people with bipolar disorder and anxiety disorder. And numerous reports were made to Health Canada of adverse reactions and actually worsening mental health symptoms after taking the supplement, probably also because the users stopped using their physician-prescribed medications. True Hope Nutritional Support also made a variety of unauthorized health claims and medical advice, which came from non-medically qualified staff. And I mean, we've seen this for decades, false claims in the hopes to make money. For example, magazines that target young women and tell them that you need to eat these wildly low calorie or soup diets to lose weight. Also skinny teas, which are literally just laxatives. Please don't buy these people. All you're doing is dehydrating yourself. Yeah, and very uncomfortably so too. (laughs) And you know, the sad part about all these things is that they're just so popular. Yeah, commercialization raises concerns about profit-driven motives, which are overshadowing these evidence-based practices. And ultimately, it can lead people to have unrealistic expectations that, when they aren't met, cause people to not trust the field of nutritional psychiatry, and all because a lack of evidence behind some commercial products. What's really sad about this, too, is that this misinformation must be so detrimental to struggling individuals in so many different ways. Yeah, exactly. And this type of misinformation is highly dangerous. It can lead people to waste their time and they could be getting effective interventions in the meantime. So we need to make sure that we trust the sources we're getting our information from and ultimately maintain balance in our lives. Yeah, that's a really good point. And do you have any advice for that? Any sources that you would recommend? Well, a great place to get information on nutritional psychiatry is just to look up the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research and the work that the scientists that are associated with that organization produce. For example, the Society has an annual conference that I was actually lucky to attend this year, and it provided some really insightful information on the role of diet and nutrition in mental health from these really reputable sources and leading researchers in the field. But honestly, it doesn't have to be that complicated when deciding on lifestyle factors for our mental health. Everyone already knows what practices and habits make them feel good in the long run. It's just recognizing that and sticking to them. Absolutely. Elena, can you just sum this all up for me? For sure. So, I mean, we've talked about from ancient wisdom, the rise of modern research. Overall, it just appears that the field of nutritional psychiatry is coming a long way and establishing itself. Although it does have vast potential to revolutionize mental health treatment, nutritional psychiatry remains a subject of controversy in the scientific community and society at large. There's a lack of robust evidence, there's challenges in dietary assessment, and there's conflicting findings. And these are all some of the scientific issues that spark debate. In addition, there's misinformation and commercialization, which also contribute to these issues. So to address these challenges and build credibility, the field needs to continue to conduct high quality research and remain transparent in its practices and also consider broader societal factors when advocating for dietary interventions for mental health. 
So as we close off this episode, I also wanted to say that diet is just one of many factors that influence mental health. The environment, physical activity, our genes all play important roles too. Overall, I just hope to see a more holistic and preventative approach to mental health care incorporated over the next few decades. I definitely agree with you. So to wrap up, in this first episode of the Nutritional Psychiatry series, we've introduced the history of nutritional psychiatry, limitations and challenges of research, as well as current controversies surrounding the field and its portrayal in the media. Stay tuned for our next episode, which dives into the root of it all, the gut-brain axis, with a special expert guest. As always, we appreciate your support, and if you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality evidence-based episodes, you can check out our Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee pages linked in the episode description and also found on our link tree in our Instagram bio. These are both easy-to-use platforms where you can donate to our volunteer-based initiative. No matter how much or how little you decide to share with us, we really appreciate your generosity. If you can't contribute financially and you're part of the Queen's University community, feel free to reach out and volunteer with us. Also, if you're currently researching the brain and would like to share your research with us, also feel free to reach out. We're always looking for students who are passionate about science translation and evidence-based content creation to join our team. No previous podcast experience needed. You can just DM us on social media or shoot us an email at thinktwicepodcast@outlook.com. On that note, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Think Twice and see you next time.